This episode is brought to you by Visit Williamsburg. In Williamsburg, Virginia, there's never too much of a good thing. Whether you're a foodie, a golfer, a history buff, a shopaholic, an outdoor enthusiast, or a thrill seeker, you'll find what you came for here and more. So ask yourself, what is it you want? Discover Williamsburg and plan your trip at visitwilliamsburg.com. When you need mealtime inspiration, it's worth shopping Kroger, where you'll find over 30,000 mouth-watering choices that excite your inner foodie. And no matter what tasty choice you make, you'll enjoy our everyday low prices, plus extra ways to save, like digital coupons worth over $600 each week. You can also save up to $1 off per gallon at the pump with fuel points. More savings and more inspiring flavors make shopping Kroger worth it every time. Kroger, fresh for everyone. Fuel restrictions apply. Another day is here, and you're ready for it. What to wear? Check. Breakfast, lunch, and dinner? Check. Planning for what's next and how to save for it? That's where Bank of America can help. For your financial to-dos, Bank of America has experts ready to help get you closer to your goals. Get started at one of our local financial centers or 24-7 in our mobile banking app. Find a location near you at bankofamerica.com slash talk to us. What would you like the power to do? Mobile banking requires downloading the app and is only available for select devices. Message and data rates may apply. Bank of America and a member FDSE. Welcome to the New Books Network. Good afternoon. My name is Brian Clifford, Principal Architect of Topher Architecture, and you're listening to New Books Architecture, a podcast channel on the New Books Network dedicated to architecture and its publications. If you have any suggestions on authors you'd love to hear me speak with next, feel free to send me an email at btopher at topherarchitecture.com. Today's guests are Randall Wayhead and Clifton Stanley Lemon to talk about their book, Beautiful Light, An Insider's Guide to LED Lighting in Homes and Garden. Randall's one of the foremost authorities on residential lighting and has written six books on the subject, this being the seventh. Clifton is CEO of Clifton Lemon Associates, a consultancy providing strategy, marketing, and education services to the lighting and industry industries. Thank you both very much for being here with me today. Welcome to the show. We thank you. Thanks for having us on. Yeah, thanks, Brian. Um, I think a great place to start would be uh, to talk about why we did the book and uh, talk about how Randall and I got started working together. He's the guy that introduced me to lighting. And uh, I remember the, one of the first times we had a discussion about what he did, because I didn't know there was such a thing. I said, oh, so you're a designer, because I always think of myself as a design person. And he said, well, I'm not really a designer. I'm a specifier. Do do you remember that, Randall? Yeah. (laughs) So here's something about this industry, which is the people who, somebody the other day referred it to me as the class of people as the choosers. And I kind of like that, you know, the ones that pick the equipment. You know, on the other hand, I tend to see design as being big D, big picture, you know, one of the fundamental human activities and lighting certainly includes that. And so um, we shared an office space in the early 80s. Okay, we're, we're like original gangsters way back. And I did not proceed to get into lighting design per se. I design almost everything else except lighting um, and buildings. But I learned about it through the process of doing books, many books with Randall. And that meant that I had to stop and diagram things, which I'd never thought about, and start looking at equipment and electrical specifications and all kinds of other stuff way, way back in, in, 
in the day. So I have a unique uh, uh, perspective on it that kind of came from that. Interesting. And so as I kind of talked about before we kind of started this, so, you know, as an architect, you know, throughout school and even in my practice, I've read a lot of literature on lighting. However, I don't believe I've ever actually read anything that specified project types, specifically residential. Now, of course, after reading the book, that seems like a big misstep. So I'd love to hear more on why, why did you, why, why is there a book specifically in residential and why should more books probably target specific project types? I think part of it came about, uh, we wrote this during COVID and here we are sitting in our spaces, looking at these four walls and realizing that we could do better. Uh, and if you're happy in your home, I think you're gonna be happier in your life and happy home has really good lighting. Uh, people immediately know what bad lighting is. It's, it's glary, it's not enough light, uh, but good lighting is subtle and they feel it, but they can't really explain what good lighting is. And part of our uh, thrust in the book was for people to understand what good lighting is and how they can apply it to their homes and their gardens. And then that expands out to people that help people design their homes in the gardens, architects, interior designers, landscape architects, contractors, that we wanted this book not only to be for design professionals, but also to be for homeowners so that they could ask intelligent questions. Yeah, and you know, back to the origins of how we got into this, I'm going to speak for you a little bit, Randall. You started out in San Francisco way back in the day as a photographer. And then I think that's how you got into lighting, if I'm not mistaken. That's right. I worked for a photographer for Architectural Digest who happened mm. to be one of the very first lighting designers. Mm. Uh, and so before lighting design was done by architects, interior designers, a lot by contractors, uh, but it wasn't a separate field of expertise until that time. And you have to remember that lighting itself really was in its infancy then. The idea of low voltage lighting uh, was just being explored and the use of light bulbs beyond the ones that we grew up with was new and exciting, at least to me, uh, and others that were just starting to emerge uh, into the lighting design business. Uh, there was a, a big group in New York City and a big group in San Francisco, and then scattered lighting designers just beginning their careers across the country and in other countries as well. And we did come together. We, we formed organizations so that we could talk with each other and share information and see what was working and what wasn't working. And we were grabbing light bulbs off of trailers and tractors and uh, airplane landing equipment and out of slide projectors uh, and experimenting with lamps, that's the industry term for light bulb, that had controlled beam spreads. Uh, and it just hadn't been done before. And we had to go in and we had to make it happen. We had to make it work. We were the beta testers of what is lighting design now. And I'm very proud of that. 
And I'm very honored to know all of the people that I would call the original gangsters of, or most or many of them, the original gangsters of lighting. In San Francisco, I do recall that time way, way back uh, when what was happening is the restaurants were had discovering, and a lot of them we saw uh, restaurants discovered the um, uh, the projector light bulbs, the MR16 halogen. Uh, being used for low voltage directional lighting. So I think the, the new direction, the beginnings of lighting design, like Randall's talking about, came from a departure from nothing but, uh, nothing but uh, uh, omnidirectional A lamps, the regular light bulb that you think of, and, and, and using um, you know, BRs, floodlights, and especially the MR16, which is really small and could provide beautiful light and very highly highly defined directional lighting this was this was really a lot of that residential design came from that too so it's kind of really the beginnings of the profession in, in this country as we understand it and a lot of the people who were part of that like jim benya john moyer and um, nancy clanton you know they, they were all kind of part of that whole group back then they're still around making wonderful that's movies. right yeah so there's a lot of history um, behind all that. And it's very interesting to hear kind of a behind the scenes, uh, all that. And so you had mentioned kind of lighting design being in its infancy. And so of course, some time has passed. And while I guess it could be argued that it's not in its infancy, I think it could also be argued that it still hasn't become as of a much of a mainstream design aspect as you would think. I know from my own personal experience in larger firms on larger projects, as the architect, myself or other architects didn't tend to deal with the lighting. There was either a consultant or a specifier for a company kind of dealing with that. So I'd like to hear a little bit more on that. Well, you're right in that, uh, that we always say it's the, the last thing that's thought about on a project. And it's the first thing that's cut from the budget. That's right. Uh, and we do so much after the fact lighting design after the building has been built, whereas it would be so much more beautifully integrated into the architecture if it was done as the building is being designed. And uh, finally, I think within, I would just say the last 15, 20 years, we were really uh, teaming up with the architects and they were bringing us very early into the jobs so that the lighting disappeared other than the, what was supposed to be decorative the lighting was integrated into the architecture and it just made the job so much more uh, beautiful and subtle and transformative. And uh, these, these are the jobs that I'm very proud of. The ones where we have to go in and try to push back into existing ceilings and walls and hang things off of things. Those are really just fixes uh, to, a, to an issue. They, they, weren't part of the original design and we're just trying to play catch up at that point. And I, I would love it if it just became part of the design process. And it may be, it's not the lighting designers that are doing it, but if the architects and the interior designers know lighting better, then they can create a design where it's uh, beautifully cohesive to the overall project. 
Yeah, it, it, it is, Brian. It is one of the problems with the industry that it's marginalized in a lot of ways. It, 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 on, if you look at it from a standpoint of a project budget and the amount of money that's allocated to it, the electrical contractor gets all of that and generally very often makes decisions on design based on what's available from an electrical component standpoint. Of course, that's not a design-driven process at all. I think it's kind of going both ways. In some ways, the the, uh, practice of lighting design is becoming even more marginalized and commoditized. At the same time, it's becoming more democratized and more specialized. And those are two different directions, but they're not necessarily uh, in conflict. And what we mean by that is actually, what I mean by that is part of why we wrote the book. We wanted, we've always wanted to democratize the information, meaning there's a lot of detail and a lot of special stuff. It's not rocket science to understand the basics of lighting. Um, one of which in our book literally is lighting people which i think we're gonna get to in a minute because that's one of the things that we feel is most important about the whole design process but i think randall and my uh goal has always been to uh educate people and open their minds about how you can take even simple things like uh and do a bounce off your ceiling and get better uh ambient light uh if you you know it's like well okay that seems to work sometimes and but why and and what's what's going on behind that the idea is if you understand the idea of what ambient light actually is and how you can control it you're in a much better position to do your own lighting design i mean and people should be able to there's now so much more product available and it's so flexible with leds that like with tape light, for instance, and all the different sorts of lamps that are getting smaller, lots of really good quality light, better than incandescence, incredibly controllable, uh, can put anywhere, super flexible. That's actually a big part of our book here is to say, okay, those of you who remember incandescent lights, just forget all about them. They're you know, some of them are still beautiful and everything, but LEDs are really, really good and better than incandescents in almost every regard, especially with energy efficiency, flexibility, and controllability. So that was that's a huge, a huge part of our book. Of course, and so you had mentioned LEDs, and so I, I guess I, I assume that it's somewhat of a given in the industry that LED lights are better. But it's interesting that you mentioned more flexible because, again, without offending every electrical engineer and contractor who might listen to this, I've never been in an office building or a commercial building that did not have scalloped lights on the walls. And uh, I believe the term is the Swiss cheese ceiling. So yeah. LED provides all this flexibility. I've never been in a building that didn't use recessed cams and overlight the walls. There you go. And the Swiss cheese thing is a term that we use. Back to what Randall was saying about hiding the light sources, this became something that was just grossly overused. I'm going to let him talk more about it, but the, what I want to say about it is we don't advocate for using a huge amount of downlights if you can avoid it. We, we advocate for lighting vertical surfaces. That's part of an ambient strategy. And if you use a, a downlight, make it an adjustable one. Well, we do talk about light layering, which 
really is the, the secret sauce for lighting design. And it's the, the four functions of light are task, ambient, accent, and decorative. And understanding what those four functions are help you make a better design in the end because you're bringing these elements together to create a, a good workable design. Now, uh, task lighting is light by which you do work. It's light underneath the cabinet in the kitchen, in the closet, next to the chair for reading. Then you have accent light, and that's light that's used to highlight objects in the space to create a little bit of dimension and drama. So you're lighting tabletops, art, plants, things like that. Then we have uh, decorative lighting, which uh, is it's just a little bit of visual sparkle. It helps draw you into a room. It starts to create the feel that you want. It can create a, a division between rooms so that you, in a large open space, you feel like you've got a room within a room. And then the last one, the, the one that we both think is the most important is ambient light. And that's light that's bounced off of the ceiling. And that what it does is it softens the shadows on people's faces so that they look younger and more refreshed. And who doesn't want that? Uh, and there are so many different ways that you can do it. Uh, like Clifton said, you can pull in a couple of up lamps, torchers, and immediately get ambient light. But if you come in early, you can create uh, coves, uh, you can uplight beams, you can do all of these things that get that wonderful ambient light, but it's not so obvious. And so once people understand, really, those are the four terms for lighting. If you get that language of light, which is very small language, then you can talk very intelligently with your contractor and your architect and your interior designer as to what it is that you want. And you have a better understanding of how you can do it. Yeah, and I think we talk about balancing the layers. We've got examples in the book of uh, jobs which are just beautifully balanced. And beauty is a word I like to throw around deliberately because in residential design, uh, you don't want um, uh, an environment that's all ambient light like you get with, um, like you get with, uh, uh, you know, trough or fluorescent troffers which is what is are in all office buildings all over the world and that that's actually you know the worst lighting condition you can have because it just flattens out everything um you want a beautiful environment you know you, you want the interplay between all the different layers all four of them now often you can only have two layers and if i would only have two on a desert island i would choose ambient and task because ambient softens everything up and shows you the space and task focuses on what you need to be doing. Accent provides a little bit of that kind of, but you know, you're looking at ambient being reflected directional or omnidirectional and task and accent being directional light. And LEDs are extremely directional uh, without fancy optics to make them omnidirectional, meaning there you can create a beam anywhere from one degrees to 180 degrees with optics and LEDs, they're actually, and that's part of the whole flexible thing in that too. So understanding what the layers are and how to use them is really mostly what the design part of the book is about. And so it's, you know, kind of going back to the residential portion of this. So I am a residential architect. Mm -hmm. And so you had mentioned that lighting design's a bit marginalized. 
And so while that's certainly true in commercial and you know, institutional buildings, I can personally say the number of clients I've met, I can probably count on one hand how many of them had a preference for lighting, had picked any out, or were even aware of the importance of it, not just beauty, but even financially, et cetera. And right. so there are really good case studies here. And so I guess the question I have, you know, what, what, is, what helps in either convincing clients that this is a, an important aspect or the clients you work with are already kind of on board? I'm, I'd be curious about that. I'll tell you the technique that I use uh, as a lighting designer is that I set up my home as sort of a light lab. So I have both good and bad lighting. And when I have a potential client, I walk them through the house and I show them and explain, this is accent lighting, this is ambient light, this is task lighting here. And this is what you look like at the mirror with light on the sides. Here's what you look like at the mirror with light above the mirror. And here's what you look like with a light, with a recessed down light over the sink. And they immediately get it because they are in, an, in that environment. You can talk about lighting, but it's not something that you can hold and present to them. But if they, they go in and they actually feel it, it makes all the difference. And then I, the big reveal at the end of the tour is that everything they've seen is LED lighting even though it looks very incandescent, it's very warm, it's very rich in color. And that's because I'm choosing the right color temperature, the right color rendering index. Uh, and those little details make the difference. And they, that's how they get it. And when I uh, work on lighting showrooms, I want them to create vignettes so that they can walk into a bathroom environment or a kitchen environment or a living room environment and have the ability to see different types of lights being used in that space and how they function. I think that is the best way to convince somebody is let them experience it. Yeah, and Brian, that, that's a really good question. Um, I would start to answer it by saying that, you know, Randall was saying a while ago that, well, everybody knows what bad lighting looks like. And I think part of the aim of our book here is to be able to make people understand what they're looking like looking at when they see good lighting because in in my mind i see good lighting and i don't have to analyze it at all it's like tasting a really good wine i'm like damn that's good and i know why it's good because i can break down all the elements but your mind works too quickly your brain works too quickly when you're in a really comfortable environment. you're automatically feeling it before you can even begin to describe it and so this is partly a learning to see book, you know, and to say, oh, look at that uplight and oh, beautifully uh, uh, articulated texture because of grazing and all those sorts of things. And so showing people what they want, as you know, as a residential architect, probably you've had the experience over and over of somebody bringing in a magazine and going, we want this feeling or we want something like this. And that's a completely human thing to do. So that's part of the purpose of our book was to show all of the different ways that places can be beautiful and to back that up with an understanding of the design principles, the physics, and uh, the dynamics behind how you get those beautiful things. Because there's a lot of detail. There's a lot of stuff that has to be done right and, and, and everything, but most of these concepts are not really hard to understand because 
a lot of it's very common sense. What I was curious about is how you ended it, because I did want to segue into the discussion of daylighting as well. Mm -hmm. And that unless there's anything else you'd like to cover, I figure that might be kind of our last thing before I ask you what you've both been working on since. Yeah, there is there is one thing I think we wanted to cover, which is lighting people. And uh, oh, okay. yeah. yep. Yeah. So you know, this is part of the beautiful part. Um, what what happens in a house is if you're spending time and money making your space, almost we all do this. It's like, you know, you can you can shape it for yourself and your family or your significant other or your dog, right? But a lot of it is about, well, what can we, what will it look like and feel like to people who come over? And we want to impress them uh, as being people with exquisite tastes and, and you know, a, a lovely sense of design or whatever. And so a lot of our decisions are about how can we make that better? We're thinking about lighting furniture and spaces and everything, not human beings. But when we get up in the morning and look at ourselves in the mirror, which is what everybody does first thing in the morning, what do we look like? That's the beginning of lighting people and so once you go beyond how you look we talk about vanities a lot and this is super important now you think about what do your guests look like and so we're showing in the book uh samples of what human beings look like in different lighting conditions you never want to use light for instance that's uh uh colder than 4000 k in a residential uh, situation it makes people look terrible and also that back to that downlight thing Nothing but downlights and, you know, directly overhead downlights cast shadows on people's faces and nobody realizes this. They think, oh, it's great and beautiful and clean, but the light makes everybody look like Boris Karloff. And, you know, unless you point that out to people, they kind of don't get it. Unless you point out how to avoid that, they won't do it. And so that, you know, that and skin color, rendering skin color and everything with the right uh, color temperature and color rendering is super important. So most people don't talk about lighting human beings. Architects don't want human beings in their photos. That's a cultural thing that happens. A lot of it is because they can't afford the release rights for models. So some of it, but some of it is this idea that people just mess up the design, that it's best before, right? It's best before it's lived in. And then after that, it's completely downhill from there. So had to get that in there, right? Right. Many renderings are often kind of being accused of being sterile, and the joke is being that the architects didn't design the people; they designed the building, so they just don't care. Yeah, yeah. there's that. And and so wanted, I'm sorry. Go ahead. You wanted to talk about daylight. Yes, you know we've been. Of course, all these are great conversations about you know man-made lighting, which every building deals with. But, you know, there is something that I guess was a bit more of a given before technology became as dominant, and that is sort of the design of daylighting. We might not control the sun, but that we certainly, your book makes a good case that we can control the design of it into our building a little bit. I'm going to let you lead on that, Randall. We didn't really talk about much in day, uh, as a, uh, a rep, how was that, about daylight. We didn't talk much about daylighting in the book. I mean, ours is all about what happens after dark? We're your after dark guys. Uh, how do you control the light once the, the sun goes down? How do you make these places usable, inviting? Uh, and that all comes from 
uh, artificial light. And that's, that's really what the, the book is about. There are books about the use of daylighting, both in residential spaces and commercial spaces, but that's not what this particular book is about. It's to get people comfortable with uh, the idea of lighting design and the idea of using LEDs as the go-to light source for their projects. Yeah, yeah. Kind of, I'm sorry. Let, let me add to that, which is that there's a big reason for that, which is largely to do with professional practice, which is that, uh, especially in a residential project, you're either remodeling or doing a new building. And in any case, the, the lighting designer never has anything to say about daylight. That's just the way things are right now. But the more they understand about it, the better. Like if you're in a situation where you're trying to overcome bad architecture because you've got this huge window with way too much daylight and glare and it's backlighting people and you can't even see them, you will be called upon to um, remedy that situation and you kind of need to understand it. If you're part of the team planning the building, which we advocate for integrated team, you're going to have a lot more to say about that. The other thing about it is that if you understand the way lighting works in spaces and buildings in general, then what works for daylighting, like skylights or, or um, surfaces that reflect light well into good ambient light, will also, you know, if it works for daylight, it will also work for electric lighting. And so that understanding of how light works in, in, in volumes in architecture is super important for anybody involved in designing building spaces. Absolutely, and if I could kind of add on a little bit to the discussion I started. Well, like I said, sustainability, of course, big subject for design and is kind of a given on any project. So often, whenever discussing sustainability in terms of lighting, as I was trying to say, you know, daylighting seems to be kind of the main subject. However, the reality is, is that, you know, as you said, there's a lot of lighting required for after dark, but it doesn't mean that man-made lighting cannot be done in a sustainable manner. I think you discussed that in the book, you know, specifically, you bring up, you know, California has energy codes requiring that. But even beyond that, there's more to the whole the sustainable design of interior lighting than just, you know, energy usage, cost, et cetera. I was wondering if you could elaborate on that a little bit for us. Well, yeah, one of the big problems is a situation that we show in one of our lighting direction examples where there's a woman standing against a window and there's so much daylight that she's completely blacked out. I mean, What's going on with your eye in a situation where you have a big window with a lot of light and it's not mitigated correctly either by eaves or, or window shadings or things that you have to mitigate daylight. That's one of the major purposes of shelter is to, you know, make it so you can actually see what you're doing. And if you're doing that by adding more lighting, you're automatically going against sustainability because it's, you know, you're using more energy than you should be. So again, part of the problem is it's not the provenance of the lighting designer to control everything, but it is part of their concern, the light in the building. And so we argue for more uh, integrated design in teams uh, that they're working on a space to communicate with each other so you can understand these, uh, these concerns in a holistic way. Right. And so, of course, as I said, you know, there's a lot of great case studies in here, very visual. So I'll encourage everyone who's listening to us talk to actually look at the case studies in the book. And so, of course, there's a lot more concepts we could talk about, but I'd, I'd like you to get you to your weekend. 
And so the question I have is, you know, now that the book's been kind of wrapped up, what's next in the world of, you know, educating on lighting for both of you? Part of it is that uh, we're going to be doing a, a book tour. Uh, a lot of it will be virtual, uh, but some of it is going to be face-to-face with audiences. Uh, and we love that part. We, we like um, the entertainment aspect of uh, getting light across to other people, that it's a very dry subject. But if you can uh, present it humorously, they tend to remember more. And so that's that I think for the next six to eight months, uh, that is going to be our main focus. Uh, I don't have another book in the works right now. Uh, and what are you doing, Cliff? <laughs> thinking about the next book um <laughs> i think it's going to be about um how how light works with architecture and i've done something called the building as luminaire which looks at architecture that's driven by considerations of light which of course would very much involve residential too but our next gig that we're doing will be we're doing a uh presentation to IES Denver section on November 18th, I believe it is, that's a Thursday. Um, and we will be doing lots of teaching and speaking and probably uh, translating uh, the book into uh, some online classes that will be available in a bunch of different places once we work that out. And so we're, 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 that's what we're doing right now to kind of take this text forward and turn it into active teaching uh, experience. Interesting. I'd love to share that with students someday because <laughs> I know sure. this like that is never super easy to grasp. So, but great. Glad to hear it. Hopefully, we can talk in the future about the next book both of you just hinted at. So, right. Well, I want to thank okay. you both again for taking the time to talk with me. Sure. My pleasure. And for everyone listening, the book is Beautiful Light, an insider's guide to LED lighting in homes and gardens. I want to thank everyone and have a great day. It's available on, uh, on uh, Amazon and also on the Taylor and Francis Routledge label website. Great. Thank you. Thank you so much. All right, Brian. Thank you.